Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing this morning in our series on the Gospel of Matthew, and in particular on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, just to give a, a little bit of a summary to bring us up to speed about where we are up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, there is a, a group of people in the Gospel who have responded to, responded to Jesus' call to come follow me. And what is this group like? Is it, is it the smartest and most well-to-do in Jerusalem at that time? No. It's the sick, the hurting, the broken, people who have experienced pain in their life, and all of the caretakers of those people are those that we read are following Jesus, who have responded to Jesus' call to come follow me. And so as Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, he looks over this crowd of people and he says to them, uh, congratulations, Uh, blessed are you. Congratulations to those who have experienced pain and disappointment and frustration in this earthly life because it's made them ready to receive the eternal blessings that God has for them. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, who are broken who are hurting, who feel like you have nothing to offer because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Congratulations to those who mourn because you will receive the eternal blessing of God's comfort. Congratulations because you are a people who are ready to receive, what was our word last week? Grace. And then after the Beatitudes, after his congratulations to these people, what he says to them is that they are salt and light. The world needs Beatitude people. The world needs Beatitude people. And this is what we talked about last week. And it was an amazing week last week. The baptisms, uh, Judy, your story, and the work of the Spirit last week. Um, My daughter... Uh, Sam Berkey getting baptized, all of it was just an amazing day, and it was a day filled with grace. The world needs beatitude people, people of grace, because our world operates in this way that keeps us in this constant and never-ending cycle of achievement, of revenge, of making sure that we are always just looking out for ourselves, but grace makes new kinds of things possible. And beatitude people are people who know very well the grace that they have received from God so that they can then pass that grace on to others. So that gets us to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would 
speak your word to me and through me and to your people who are here today. Lord, may your spirit speak. Amen. Now, I, I don't know about you, but these, these four verses, they make me a little nervous. Um, and I've always felt that they were a little out of place in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, so much of the Sermon on the Mount is about these practical, everyday things that are really clear to us and that we can understand. I mean, Jesus talks about our relationships with other people, um, about how we are to speak with our words, how we're to pray. Um, he, He calls us to be people who aren't anxious and who don't worry. These are all very tangible things that we think about and that we, um, that we want to know how to respond to in our life. But these, these verses have always seemed a bit disconnected from my everyday life. I mean, I don't think that any of us woke up this morning wondering whether or not Jesus came to abolish the law or the prophets. Was that your first thought when you woke up this morning? Probably not. But it seems that the people who were listening to him that day were wondering about it. There was something about the way that Jesus was acting, some of the ways that Jesus was teaching, and the kinds of people that were following him, and the kinds of people that he was saying congratulations to, blessed are you, It was something about all of that that made them wonder if he was just tossing out all of that ancient tradition that we find in the Old Testament. And so Jesus here gives a clarification. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Why does he say that? I think it's because some people thought that that's what he was doing. Jesus has just given these beatitudes, these statements of who is really blessed. He says congratulations to the people who were seen as the lowest and most despised and who would have been seen as rejected by God. He doesn't say congratulations to you who follow the law. For the people who are listening to him, this was challenging their assumptions about who was in and who was out who belonged to the kingdom of heaven and who didn't. And he's done this by gathering a group of broken and hurting people around him. And he says to them that these are the ones who are inheriting the kingdom, not the people who think that they're following the law perfectly, but those who are sick and paralyzed and demon-possessed and poor in spirit and um, the broken and the hurting. These are those who are inheriting the kingdom of heaven. And at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus stops to give these clarifying statements about what he is about and what he wants his followers to be about. Far from throwing out the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets, far from throwing them out, what he is doing, he says, is fulfilling their purpose. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. When Jesus says that the law and the prophets, he's using a common shorthand way of saying the Old Testament, the Bible of the Jewish people, the Bible that Jesus would have read. And Jesus is very clear that it's not his intention to start something new, but to complete something old. Jesus said he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill its purpose. Notice that Jesus doesn't say what we might expect him to say, or certainly what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law wanted him to say, was that I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to obey it or follow it. He doesn't say that. 
He says, I have not come to abolish the law, I have come to fulfill it, to fulfill the law. And this word fulfill is a word that Matthew has already used a few times in the Gospel of Matthew and will continue to use through his Gospel. Matthew's a Jewish person who knows the Old Testament well, and as he's writing his Gospel, he's realizing that there's many things that are spoken of in the Old Testament that are not yet complete, that have not yet been filled out, that are still left hanging. And over and over again, Matthew tells us that Jesus is the one who fulfills those things that have not yet been finished. The Old Testament, according to Matthew and to Jesus, was not God's final word to human beings or to even to the Jewish people. It was and is a true word to human beings, but it was not the final word. There was more to come. There was always more to be fulfilled. There were promises made there that still needed to be fulfilled. There were laws given there that still needed to be put into practice. There was wisdom in there that needed to be fully lived out. And Jesus says, I have come to be the fulfillment, the completion of what was given to us in the law and the prophets. And the book of Hebrews uh, gives a different image to describe the same thing that Jesus is communicating here. The book of Hebrews says that the law was a shadow of Christ, a shadow. It pointed to something even more real and more permanent that was to come. That was the role that the law played. It pointed to something more real and more permanent that was to come. So in verses 17 through 19, Jesus is being clear that he has no intention of throwing the Old Testament out. He is not starting something new. He is completing something very old. He is fulfilling it. He is the real thing that the shadow represented. And what Jesus is challenging in the Sermon on the Mount and really in his whole ministry is not the law and the prophets themselves, but what he is challenging over and over again is the way that the religious leaders interpreted and applied the law and the prophets. Let me just say that again. In Jesus' ministry, he is not challenging the law and the prophets themselves. He is challenging and reinterpreting the way that the religious leaders had interpreted and applied the law and the prophets. Because over time, what had happened is that the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, began to teach that the purpose of the law was our way to please God. If we tried to follow the law, and if we did a pretty good job at it, then we would be on God's team. We would be blessed. We would be on God's side, God's good side. And so here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells them that that was never, ever, ever what the law was about. The law was never intended to be kept so that we would be accepted by God so that we would be on God's good side, so that we would get to heaven. That was never the intention of the law. The law was not given so that God would be able to know us and love us. The law was given so that we could come to know God and love him. The law was given so that we could know how to rightly love our neighbors. The law was given so that we could know how to live in God's good creation. The law was never given to somehow make ourselves worthy of God's love for us but instead to teach us how to know God and to love him and how to love our neighbors rightly. When Moses was up on the mountain and God gave him the law and the commandments, the first word of the law and commandments that God gave to him was not, thou shalt not do. 
this. Thou shalt not have other gods before me. This is the first word that God gives to Moses. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. The first words of the law that God gave to Moses are words of God's grace. God saying who he is for them and who they are to him. The relationship is already established. The work of salvation is already completed. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Before I give you these commands, before I ever even give you an opportunity to obey them or disobey them, I am the Lord your God. Before you can ever do anything for me, I have already done everything for you. I rescued you from slavery before you could ever follow or not follow a single one of my laws. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. This is the first word of the law that God gave to Moses. God says, I have determined our relationship already. It is my character and my action that forms our relationship, not your character or your actions. That's Worthy of a big amen. Let me say it again so you can say amen really loud. God says it's my character and my action that determines our relationship, not your character and your actions. Thank you. I didn't deliver that well enough for you to give it to me, so I wanted to give you another chance. Before you can follow a single thou shalt not, I am the Lord your God. And that reality, that perspective of the law changes everything. Because over time, the religious leaders had taken the law and had made it into something that it was never meant to be. They had made it into the way to earn God's favor and acceptance, to earn God's love. And when it is read in that way, it truly does become a burden and a curse. But when the law is read as a way to show us God and his character... When the law is read as a way to show us how we can love him and how we can love our neighbor, it is a gift of grace to us. And so with that in mind, let me read again verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That must have taken some of their breath away. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were considered the holiest people of the day. They were the righteous people. They were the people that everyone looked up to for guidance and direction. They were the examples to follow. Most of them would have had the entire Old Testament memorized. And because these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, because they're always in opposition to Jesus and the Gospels, in our minds, they're these kind of really grumpy and angry people, you know, just kind of religious bigots who just kind of walk around angry all the time. And that is our perception of them. But that was not the perception of the people of that day. These were the good people. These were the people that God considered blessed. They were perceived as people's examples. And for sure, Jesus does unmask their inner motivations and their wrong ways of thinking. He does reveal that they were just kind of grumpy and angry people. But that's not the way that the people perceived them to be. 
Uh, the equivalent today would be if I stood up here and said, if your righteousness does not surpass that of Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I used that example like 10 years ago at my previous church, and I got this really long letter about why I called Billy Graham a Pharisee. That is not what I'm saying. <laughs> okay? What I'm trying to do is to give you a sense of the force and the shock that the people would have felt that day when they heard Jesus say that your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And no doubt when they heard Jesus said that, I suspect that many of them were scratching their heads and thinking the kingdom of heaven is no place for me. And so the question that I asked this week around this particular verse was how is this statement good news? How is this the gospel? Jesus said, if your righteousness does not surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then you will surely not enter the kingdom of heaven. Hearing Jesus says that feels like the burden of Jesus must be incredibly heavy. But we know that the burden of Jesus is light. So how is this good news? How is this the gospel? What does Jesus mean by our righteousness surpassing the law of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law was a righteousness that was all about external, outward behavior. They taught that if you tried your best to obey the law, if you followed it perfectly or somewhat perfectly, then you would be accepted and loved by God. You would find God's favor in your life. But the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus is offering us a different kind of righteousness than that. It is a righteousness that goes deeper than our external behavior. It goes beyond wearing the right clothes and knowing the right words to impress people at church. It goes beyond saying our prayers in exactly the right way in exactly the right formulas. It goes deeper than all of those external things. It certainly does involve getting rid of evil behavior, but it goes deeper than that behavior to the root of where that evil behavior comes from in the first place. The righteousness that Jesus is offering to his followers is a righteousness that doesn't only teach us how to do good, righteous things, but it enables us to actually become good and righteous people. Not just to behave good, but to be good here in the innermost parts of ourselves. The righteousness that Jesus offers to us is nothing less than the complete transformation of your heart and mind. And if you are open to him, if you are open to his teaching, if you are willing to commit yourself to obedience to him, then you will find that over time, your heart is changing and becoming more and more like his. And so when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we cannot read the Sermon on the Mount as some sort of new law that Jesus puts out there. And this is not Jesus' appendix to the law of the Old Testament. And this is often the way that the Sermon on the Mount is read. As if the sermon is Jesus' new law that you and I need to try to do our best to keep to somehow make ourselves right with God. And another version of this view is that, that Jesus is giving us his new law and that he's actually made it harder. 
That what he did is that he took Moses' law and he dialed it up a notch, made it even harder so that we will eventually come to our senses and believe that we have to fall down at his feet for his grace. The Sermon on the Mount is like Jesus' attempt to make us say uncle. (laughs) You know? And if we read the Sermon on the Mount as just another set of laws to follow, then I suppose that it will accomplish that for you. You will discover that you are completely at the mercy of his grace. We won't get to heaven by trying to keep it because we won't keep it perfectly. But I don't think that that is the best way for us to think about what Jesus is up to or what he is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus' new law made even harder and more impossible to follow. Rather, Jesus is calling us to be people who follow him in fulfilling what the purpose of the law was given for in the first place, to learn to help us to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Jesus, because he's the best teacher that the world has ever known, he doesn't just tell us to do it. He also helps us to do it. And he doesn't just tell us to do it. He is also the very renovator of our hearts who enables us to do it. Jesus says that unless you have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What he means by that is that he offers a righteousness that is a transformation of our inner selves, of our hearts. The outward behavior that is commanded or prohibited in the Old Testament law, they are all pointers to an inward reality that God is finally most concerned about. So as an example, Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not murder. And we say, got it, no problem, I won't kill anyone today. But Jesus goes on to say what? But I say to you, that anyone who, uh, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, or fool, is an answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. What Jesus is saying here is that there is an inner reality that the command, don't murder, was always pointing to. Jesus says that what God intends for us is more than the ability to keep from killing people. What God intends for us as his followers is to be people who would never have hate in our hearts at all. People who don't nurse grudges. People who don't insult others. But rather that we would be people who love others, even those people who hate us. The righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is a righteousness that goes deeper than our behavior. It includes our behavior, of course, but it goes deeper than our outward actions. And again, if you only read the Old Testament law or if you only read the Sermon on the Mount as these rules and regulations that you have to follow in order to get on God's good side, then it's not going to make sense. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount as as Jesus' kind of bit of reverse psychology to make us finally understand grace, we're going to miss what is truly offered here, which is Jesus' invitation for us to become and to learn how to be righteous people. What Jesus is offering to his disciples, what he is offering to us, is a practical righteousness that goes beyond our behavior and that changes our inner self. He is saying to us, come to me, 
Learn from me. Live in this new reality called the kingdom of heaven. And it will be a reality where murder and adultery and worrying about money and having anxiety and wanting to get revenge, where those things that all of us wrestle with in one way or another, none of them will even be possible for you anymore because I am changing your inner nature. Your heart will be different. Jesus goes beyond outward forms and actions and gets literally to the heart of the matter. What Jesus is doing with you, if you are his follower, and if you're allowing him to do this, what Jesus wants to do is get to the root source of that evil in you and to do the work of changing you there in that place. The righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and Sadducees is a righteousness that comes from a renovated heart. And that's something that can only be received by God's grace. In the Old Testament, always said, the law always said that this is exactly what he was going to do for his people. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Moses is giving one of his final speeches to his people, and he's encouraging them, challenging them to obey the law, and also, in a way, admitting, I know you're not going to do it perfectly. And he says this, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. As we move on to the prophets, Ezekiel chapter 36 says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you. I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or to say one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. This has always been the purpose of the law, that God would transform our hearts. The law and the prophets themselves always promised that one day God would change our hearts, and that is what Jesus came to fulfill that he would transform and renovate our hearts, not only so that we grit our teeth and try our hardest to obey the rules that we would really rather not obey at the end of the day. He is at work transforming our hearts so that we will become, that we will be transformed and righteous people. Jesus is at work transforming your heart so that you will follow and obey God's moral law with no more effort than you obey the law of gravity. How many of you thought about obeying the law of gravity today? Any of you wake up and wonder that if you walked out of your house, you might kind of fl slowly float into the sky? We never thought about it. We obey the law of gravity because it's in our nature to obey the law of gravity. And friends, I suggest to you that the righteousness that Jesus is offering to us is this, that we can experience now and that we will experience forever a righteousness that is no burden at all to carry, but will simply be according to our nature. 
One of my favorite teachers, Dallas Willard, and his book called The Divine Conspiracy is the best book on the Sermon on the Mount, um, without qualification in my mind. Um, And he says this. He says, a time will come in human history when human beings will follow the Ten Commandments and so on as regularly as they now fall to the ground when they step off of a roof. The law of God will be written on their hearts. This is an essential part of the future triumph of Christ and the deliverance of humankind in history and beyond. A time will come in human history when human beings will follow the Ten Commandments and so on as regularly as they now fall to the ground when they step off of a roof. How regular do people who step off of roofs fall to to the ground? Every time, quite regularly. So the question then is, um, you know, are we supposed to follow the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount or not? And of course, the answer is yes, we are. But we don't follow them as a new law. We don't follow them as a way to earn God's favor. To read the Sermon on the Mount in that way will cause the commands to be crushing and to be a burden and to be a curse to you. We follow the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount because we have faith in Jesus. Because we have faith that Jesus is the smartest and the wisest person that has ever lived. We have faith that Jesus holds all of the treasures of knowledge in himself and that his instructions for us are not meant to be a burden, but they are an invitation to the new and best kind of life in the kingdom of heaven. We have faith in Jesus. We have faith that his information, his instructions, his way of life is the best course of life. That is the only course of life that will bring true happiness and true joy in my life, in your life, and in our community. We have faith in Jesus that if we hear his words and if we put them into practice, then we will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. So with the trials and the pain of this life come, and they will surely come, that we will be ready for them. And so when we deliberately put his words into practice, and I think practice is an excellent word here, when we put his words into practice... When we give them a shot, (laughs) Jesus then changes our hearts. The Sermon on the Mount is the curriculum that Jesus gives to his followers, to his students, that help us to learn how to be his followers. And so, for example, Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It will be through practicing those words that Jesus will be at work renovating your heart. It will be through discovering that loving our enemies and praying for them, rather than nursing grudges and insulting them, is what's going to actually bring us more joy. The Sermon on the Mount and the law in the Old Testament, they are not opposed to God's grace. They are grace. They are grace given to us so that we can know how to to be people who love God and who love our neighbors. And as we practice 
the words of Jesus. As we put them into practice, Jesus goes about that deeper work of transforming our hearts. And this is the righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's a righteousness that goes beyond behaving the right way on the outside in hopes that God will accept us. It is the righteousness of a changed heart that truly loves God and that truly loves our neighbor. So Lord, we ask that you would give us a vision for how to put your words into practice. Lord, throw out any idea that that's somehow going to make us right in your sight. Remind us, Lord, that you are our God. That you saved us already from the slavery to sin. That that relationship is already established. There's nothing we can do or not do today that will make us love you more or less tomorrow. That relationship is sure. And because we believe that and because we have faith in you, faith that you are the smartest person that has ever lived, the wisest person that has ever lived, the one who holds all the treasures of knowledge in yourself. Because we have faith in that, Lord, help us to put your words into practice. And as we do put your words into practice and do things that are impossible in our flesh, like turning the other cheek, by not worrying about anything, these things that are impossible, Lord, I pray that as we put them into practice, as we give them a try, that you would do the deeper inner work of transforming our hearts. We believe that this is what you want to do for us. We believe that this is the righteousness that you give to us as grace. And I pray, Lord, that we would receive it with gladness today. Amen.